Child sexual exploitation is the abuse of a child where some form of remuneration is involved or whereby the perpetrators benefit in some manner, monetarily, socially, politically, etc. Welcome to today's podcast episode. I hope you're having an amazing day, whatever it is you're up to. As you can tell from the title of today's podcast episode, it's a sensitive topic. It's not a topic, it's not an episode, excuse me, to be played around sensitive little ears, but it definitely is an episode for all parents, all adults to listen to. I've had today's guest, Conrad, on the podcast before, back when he was working with the Morecambe Foundation. And so when Conrad reached out about this new project that he's working on, Project Paradigm, and his focus on childhood exploitation, it was a no-brainer for me to have him back on the podcast. During our conversation, there are a few little audio creaks, a few little crackles that we have tried our best to minimize but if you do hear any little tiny creaks at the start of the conversation, just know that it's not peppered throughout the whole episode at all. I do really try to deliver the best audio quality possible. Cue the neighbor's dog barking in the backyard. Uh, But sometimes we just have little bits and pieces that get picked up on our guest's end, or even it could be a microphone issue or whatever it is. But the content of the conversation is great. And those little kind of crackles that might pop up are very minor. I just wanted to acknowledge them, especially for those of you who listen with AirPods in. It can be a little bit frustrating at times if that pops up, but just know they're few and far between. Before I tell you a little bit about Conrad and a bit more about our conversation today, I wanted to share a recommendation with you. This is not sponsored. This is just a genuine wreck. Um, And it's because I know so many of you are women, so many of you are experiencing the menstrual cycle. And if you're anything like me, you might be experiencing the side effects that come along with that menstrual cycle. I know for me in the luteal phase, so the second half of my period, of my menstrual cycle, excuse me, just before my period is due, I feel like I'm a different person. I'm more emotional, I'm less resilient, I'm more sensitive, I have lower energy, I start to get a bit crampy in my lower back, I just don't feel amazing. And over the years, I've spoken to all sorts of different experts, and one of the through lines has been magnesium. Double your magnesium, up your magnesium, make sure you're taking it, you know, soaking it, drinking it, rub it on, just as much magnesium as possible. And of course, that is not medical advice. Always go and speak to your own naturopath, nutritionist, doctor, whoever you trust when it comes to your health. But I will just say anecdotally what I've been told is about how important magnesium is, and I feel it. There are very few supplements I've ever taken in my whole life that I actually notice if I stop taking. And if I do not have magnesium in the lead up to my period, my cramps are worse and my mood is worse. So a little while ago, Brendan and I, we were in Nutrition Warehouse because one of his mates works there. 
And I saw the, this product by Switch Nutrition and it's got adrenal written on the front and it says magnesium support formula. And we bought a little tub of it. And no joke, since then we have consistently bought it. Switch have sent me one tub of this in the past, but even just yesterday, because I have my period, Brendan arrived with naprogesic, nurofen, panadol, and two tubs of this adrenal switch product. He had the mango nectar for me and also the peaches and cream. Those are two flavors we both love. You can also get a chocolate flavor as well. When I shared Switch products on my story, Switch did reach out and say, do you want a discount code to share with your community? And I said, that would be lovely. So I do have a code for you, but Switch are not paying at all to be in this podcast. This is just a genuine hand on my heart recommendation. Um, I might team up with them a little bit later on for stuff over on Instagram, maybe, uh, hopefully, but just as a genuine recommendation, Switch Nutrition Adrenal Product. If you do want to try it, my code is Kylie. That will give you a discount online. We're all in a cost of living crisis at the moment. Everything is expensive. But if you want to grab grab it and you want to try some of their products, use that code Kylie. So it's Switch Nutrition and the product says Adrenal on it. They have a variety of different flavors. I like the chocolate. Uh, As I said, mango nectar is probably my favorite that I've tried out of all of them. I want to try the lemonade. There's an apple and blackcurrant, but I don't like that one as much as the others. (laughs) Brendan does like it, but for me, it's not my favorite. Mango nectar, peaches and cream, chef's kiss. They are delish. So if you tend to feel a bit flat and a bit crappy, you know, during the luteal phase of your cycles, whatever it is adrenal switch check it out seek your own advice all of that stuff but the code is kylie if you do want to give it a crack so today's podcast episode as i mentioned i've had conrad on before i really like speaking with him and even (laughs) jordan said to me he has a really dreamy accent he does he's a pleasure to listen to it's a serious topic though and so just because of the nature of the topic sexual exploitation particularly of children it's sensitive And I also want to encourage you to practice your own listener discretion as to whether or not this is a suitable episode for you. Um, We don't get too into the nitty gritty of things. I mentioned the word rape. There's a lot of conversation around sexual exploitation, but it's much more centered around teenagers than I first thought the conversation was going to be as well. So a little bit about Conrad. He started his career working with young people in community and outdoor education-based settings in the UK and Eastern Europe. Conrad has a strong background in child protection, working as a practitioner and manager with children and young people across a number of settings, including harmful sexual behavior, intervention, missing children, child sexual exploitation, therapeutic residential care, family intervention, and domestic violence. Conrad is currently Principal Advisor on Child Sexual Exploitation with IFYS and also works with Project Paradigm, which is a national program aimed at addressing child sexual exploitation here in Australia. So let's get into my conversation with Conrad Townsend. Just quickly, a word from today's sponsors. Unless, of course, you're one of our Venti members. In that case, there are no ads and your episode is about to keep playing. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Conrad, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to have this chat with me today. It's good to be here. Thanks. It's really nice to see you. I remember our last conversation, I think I even said to you during our interview, I love your accent. I'm like, just talk to me. So it's lovely to actually be able to see the man with the amazing accent and to have you back on the podcast. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's very kind of you to say so. Um, yeah, I, sometimes it's not always good to actually see the person behind the voice, but you know. It, it is. It absolutely is, I assure you. So <laughs> Today, you and I are chatting about child sexual exploitation, which is a massive topic. And I think it's one of those topics that sometimes when we hear those words, childhood sexual exploitation, it's easy as Australians in particular to think that's an overseas issue. And it's not something that we really need to worry about because we live in such a safe country. Absolutely. Uh, you've, You've kind of hit the nail on the head. And that's actually one of the reasons why I stepped into this work in Australia. Um, My background has been predominantly working in what I call the pointy end of child protection. Um, So I've worked with young people who have been sexually abused for a a considerable amount of time now. And uh, when I started out in that career in the UK, I I kind of fell into working with child sexual abuse victims, young people with sexualized histories, um, and that eventually ended up leading to working with young people who were being sexually exploited, and within that context, young people who were going missing. Um, I would spend a lot of time training police, social workers, health, uh, but also doing direct risk reduction work with young people. Um, When I migrated to Australia, it was actually never my intention to step back into this work. I thought, I've done my stint. That's it. And I'd I'd worked fairly extensively in in quite an intensive high-end area of child protection. Uh, And the issue I had is I noticed probably within about six months of arriving, and this was back in 2016, Uh, I noticed that we had a problem and nobody seemed to understand that this was an issue in our communities. Um, The discourse and conversation was almost always focused on online exploitation or what is inappropriately referred to as overseas child sex tourism. So where you'd have Australians going into places like Southeast Asia um, Philippines, uh, sexually abusing young people in, in those countries. Um, and and yet we had it happening here in our backyard and it just wasn't being identified or recognised and, and picked up. I was going to say, I think that there is sometimes an issue with definitions and what we associate with words because just recently I was listening to a podcast about 
uh, trafficking, like sexual sex trafficking. And in my mind, that was the same sort of thing of, oh, that's something that happens overseas. You know, you automatically think of like the movie Taken and that sort of stuff. Like your mind goes there. Well, mine did anyway. But in this podcast in particular, they were talking about sex trafficking in the way of kind of someone grooming a child making the child think they're in a relationship with them and child being someone under 16 and then allowing other people to have sex with that child. And it just changed my mind on what the actual words mean and the association I have with them. So when it comes to childhood sexual exploitation, can you give us a definition on what that actually means? Yeah, that's a really good, that is a really, really good point. And it's actually a major issue. Um, before I give you that definition, I'll, I'll tell you um, why it's a major issue. The lack of a definition means that we, we're not able to consistently collate data. So, so we don't have a nationally consistent definition across the states and territories. The only state that has actually come up with something close to a definition is Victoria and even there, that's not used as a, a uniform definition across all government departments. So what we, what we have then is we have a problem whereby when we, if we imagine the general public saying, um, well, it doesn't happen here and there's no evidence of it here. Well, they're kind of right in the sense that we've got no actual defined characteristics that are nationally consistent or accepted. And the interesting thing is, in 2016, we had the uh, recommendations from the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. And one of the key recommendations was actually specific to child sexual exploitation and the need for a definition so that data could be collected and, um, the, and the prevalence actually understood. So that's the importance of having a definition. Yeah, I was going to say that makes so much sense, Conrad. As you were speaking then, I was thinking like if in each and every state we had a different name for, say, rape, then we might think, oh, rape doesn't happen as often. But because when we hear that word, it's confronting and we all understand what it means, there is an acceptance that, no, that does happen here. We all know someone who knows someone, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, the actual definition naming so that you then can understand what you're even talking about. It, absolutely. That, 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 that's a really good analogy, actually, and it's obviously pertinent to this, this context. Um, so for this reason, Kylie, I default to the UN definition because, and, and I'm maybe a little bit idealistic in this, uh, because Australia is a, a UN member state, we um, technically are a signatory to the UN Declaration of Human Rights and we're a signatory to the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Um, and there are articles within the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child that state that children should be protected from uh, exploitation. So I default, I default to the UN definition um, and... Uh, bear in mind that this definition was established in 2001. So we're now 2023. Um, so they say 
Child sexual exploitation is the abuse of a child where some form of remuneration is involved or whereby the perpetrators benefit in some manner, monetarily, socially, politically, etc. Exploitation constitutes a form of coercion and violence detrimental to the child's physical and mental health, development and education. So if we look at that and we... We we probably when we hear that we start to go okay now I start to understand what sets this apart from if you like conventional intrafamilial child sexual abuse and that is there's a form of exchange occurring now historically and inappropriately we would have heard this referred to as child prostitution or opportunistic prostitution. And certainly in Australia back in the 90s, that's very much how it was referred to. The irony is, if we look at the way in which we see young people who are being sexually exploited referred to today, we will often see them being referred to as prostituting themselves or involved in in sex work uh, and so on. So instead of us viewing them as children, we're actually ascribing an adult context and an adult world and view to children who actually, A, according to the law, can't make those decisions. Um, But we're also implying that they've got some level of self-agency and informed decision-making around a business transaction and what's occurring. Um, So, yeah, it's, it's really... We actually, what we what we see happening is we see everybody suddenly stepping into a victim blaming space. Yeah, which is unfortunately so common. And I think sometimes it's a way of people keeping things at arm's length so that they have this safe sense of safe, sorry, they have a false sense of safety by going, oh, that's not a child, that's a sex worker. Because if we really sit with it and go, oh, hang on, that is a child, it's really confronting and uncomfortable. And sometimes as humans, we don't like those experiences. We we absolutely don't. And as you will be well aware in your own sort of work, um, we, we hear the notion or, or the term uh, trauma-informed. So we lo- it's a buzzword that everybody loves. Oh, we need to be trauma-informed. We need to have trauma-informed approaches. And yet it's interesting because when we step into the realities of the characteristics of child sexual exploitation, we see trauma-informed often go out the window. And, and everybody struggles with how they contextualize what a victim looks like. So if we think about a victim, and so if we think about a child victim and we think about the word child, it's very easy for us to view, say, somebody like uh, little Cleo Davis, who was abducted in WA from that campground uh, a year or so back. Everybody very easily characterizes her as a victim in that context. She was a child, vulnerable, highly vulnerable, in need of protection, and she, she was a victim. And yet the interesting thing is, if we if we look at, say, uh, teenagers around the age of 14 and 15, and we see them 
in what would be considered to be normal youth culture settings, you know, drinking, smoking weed, that kind of stuff. We struggle with the notion that they are just as vulnerable and therefore potentially victims. And yet the interesting thing is when we actually look at young people in that particular age range, they are the most likely to be sexually exploited. Yeah, well, there's so many layers then, I guess, when we're talking about the age group of teenagers or even preteens, because they are going through this cognitive stage uh, where they are no longer as connected to their primary carers. They're more connected to their peers. So there's this other layer of like, oh, socially and at like a very probably subconscious level, they're trying to fit in. So from the outside, it looks like they have agency because they're doing all of these things. But really, they're just so vulnerable to be taken advantage of. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And and um, there were a couple of other added uh, sort of complexities and dynamics in this equation as well. Roughly between the age of twelve and fifteen, uh, what what happens with the brain during its development is is some significant changes. So we will generally find that young people, um, their brain during that age range is not utilizing the prefrontal cortex, which is the thinking part of the brain, the rationalizing, the risk, uh, the understanding of risk, all of that sits in that area of the brain. So they're not, they're, their brain is only accessing that part of the brain roughly 10% of the time. So what you will sometimes hear people, um, your neuroscientists um, describe is the brain going into refurbishment mode or closed for renovations, you know, that that kind of terminology. Because essentially what's happening is puberty's kicked in, massive growth and development spurt, hormones, everything uh, the brain is going through some significant changes, which is why when we see young people during that particular age range, we see mood swings. We see these real highs and lows. It's not unusual to see young people become depressed. Um, it also means that they tend to be driven by the limbic system, which is the emotional center of the brain. They're seeking reward and incentive far more and there's a lower recognition of risk and we also when we look at them particularly this age bracket i'm uh, i'd be interested to hear your opinion but when i look at teenagers now conrad because they have access to things like makeup tutorials steroids gym workout all of these things they are this brain as you've described that's not quite functioning as an adult but they often look like they're adults yeah and and so what we have so if we if we go back a a a single step to the notion of trauma informed we have a problem don't we we have a disconnect we have this dichotomy where we talk about being trauma informed and we talk about how we understand young people and what they're experiencing their life experiences trauma Overlay that with other complex dynamics that might be going on in the background. So young people who maybe are growing up in domestically violent households, uh, exposed to drugs and alcohol, 
um, housing insecurity, so on and so forth. Young people in the out-of-home care system, particularly vulnerable to exploitation for this reason. And so you overlay those complex dynamics and you actually see an, an exacerbated um, aspect or, or, or context for vulnerability. Um, now, it's bad enough and hard enough growing up in a, a household where everything is together, loving parents, um, you know, you, 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 there's, there's, there's nothing to want for. That's hard enough in today's day and age. But overlay that with all of those other added vulnerabilities and risk factors. And it means that you have young people who are particularly vulnerable to being targeted for exploitation. And in, incidentally, the perpetrators of exploitation are looking for those vulnerabilities. So um, I, I consult on cases regularly up and down the country where we see young people, for instance, who might be sleeping rough, and we have cases where you've got organized gangs, you've got perpetrators deliberately seeking out young people who are sleeping rough to offer them somewhere to stay, offer them protection, but in exchange for providing sexual favors. And so you then see this cycle kick off where. If we look at it from a, a hierarchy of need basis, so you'll probably be familiar with Maslow's That's hierarchy right. of needs. Well, our base need is food, shelter, protection. So, so when we're actually saying to people, um, you know, oh well, they're they're putting themselves at risk, they're seeking situations that are that are risky. We're ignoring the fact that actually there are basic needs that need to be met from a survival perspective, and that's a hierarchy. And there's also, if there's a deficit of attention and connection, yeah, that makes it even harder. You know, even in a different context, I was having a conversation with my kids about when other kids act out. And I was trying to explain that, you know, if a child's not getting positive attention, they might act out because any attention is better than no attention. And so for someone who's sleeping rough and has, you know, ha hardly any of their needs met, you do, you offer them food, shelter, and some form of connection, even though it's not a great healthy form of connection, all of a sudden, I imagine that becomes quite an appealing offer. Oh, it, for sure. Uh, look, you know, the research is pretty clear on this. When, when we're looking at child exploitation in in-person contexts and online contexts, one of the biggest drivers is seeking connection. And, and you know, you, the reality is that's a powerful, um, that's a powerful uh, driver thing that can be manipulated. So, so, you know, if I'm seeking connection and I'm seeking belonging, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to look at certain types of risk or certain types of situations and go, yeah, um, I'm not doing that because, because that's unsavory or that's just wrong. I'm looking at it through a different lens. 
And when you've got young people, for instance, who've grown up, uh, say, in a household where there's been domestic violence, um, they're exposed to power and control dynamics that may seem normalized in some respect, maybe an uncomfortable setting. It's a, it's a potential uh, push factor in itself. So in other words, that that's likely to create vulnerability because they don't like being at home. However, if they're seeking connection they've and they've grown up with a power and control dynamic uh, or an environment with power and control dynamics that you witness in a domestic violence situation, they're not necessarily going to see that as abnormal. So we've got to understand that when we're looking at the way young people, um, uh, the way vulnerability looks for individual young people, it doesn't look necessarily the same for each young person either. But one of the most common characteristics you see with victims of child exploitation is seeking connection and belonging. Mm. Um, and that that's in the major, you know, fair majority. The Victorian Children's Commissioner back in 2021 did a uh, conducted an inquiry into young people going missing from out of home care, and uh, they they found that between 40 and 50 percent of all young people going missing from care were being sexually exploited in Victoria. Um, what they also noted is that in the majority of cases, they were seeking connection. I also wonder, and again, there are so many layers here and there are so many threads we could follow, but as you were chatting about power and control then, Conrad, I was thinking that given this like age that we live in now, and I do think that there's so much more positivity towards just sex conversations in general, sex positive, sex workers, everything. I think that we are a more aware, more considerate generation. But I wonder if that sex positivity also then can sometimes penetrate the mind of someone who is vulnerable to make them think that that is like a powerful, empowering choice that they're making for themselves in this exchange, which again, just adds another layer because they're not cognitively old enough to understand their vulnerabilities and make that decision. Yeah, I, I think you make a very good point there. Um, we have a conflation of the notion of empowerment um, with the preservation of childhood. Uh, and unfortunately, we we see this dichotomy where, um, on the one hand, we want young people to be able to make decisions and have a sense of agency. Uh, and feel empowered uh, over their own lives. But at the same time, we're not affording them the rights and protections that they would have once they hit 18. So um, the interesting thing is when you look at 16 and uh, 17-year-olds in the context of the law, especially around consent, we've got this gray area and this gap because most states and territories, you'll see consent, the age of consent at either 16 or 17. Uh, I, I, think, I think there are two states, Tasmania and I think South Australia, where it's 17. Everywhere else, it's 16. Now, the problem we have is <clears throat> you could have a young person of 16 and 17 being groomed 
and sexually exploited. But everybody around them is going, oh, well, they're consenting to what's It's legal. It's, yeah, so therefore it's legal. So there's no recognition within the law of the elements of grooming for that age range. Under 16, it's a different, it's a different story. Although I hasten to add, we don't identify very well or recognize when there is sexual exploitation occurring for under 16s. Um, because again, everybody looks, you, you made the point perfectly earlier. Everybody looks at the individual and goes, yeah, well, they look old enough. They look as though they should know what's what. Um, so they're in control. The reality is what we know with what's going on with the brain and its stage of development is actually often teenagers in that age range can <laughs> can be more vulnerable than prepubescent children because their brain is in a stage of development that is making it that way. Um, yet we don't we don't actually recognise that in our system responses when we're seeing problematic situations and problematic behaviour playing out. Um, and the language we use in a system response is actually often very damaging. So I I regularly see reports. I often see um, incident reports, uh, referral reports. And the language I will see used by law enforcement, by child protection agencies, by other professionals will often be highly victim blaming in nature. And, and of course, the moment you do that, everyone else picks up that tone and runs with it. So you may never have met a young person, but have paperwork shoved in front of you that sets the tone for that young person. That's not trauma-informed. Yes. It's interesting that we're having this chat now because I actually have a scheduled podcast with a guest later in the week. You might have heard of her. Her name's Laura Richards, and she does this wonderful work. She's worked for New Scotland, New Scotland Yard and all of that, and she speaks a lot about the misogyny in the police force. So if things are reported, it's this tone that's very victim-blamey. And, yes, it's, of course, often directed to women, but of course, often directed to children as well, or teenagers that look like they should know what they're doing, but they don't. Well, that's that's exactly right. Um, and the interesting thing is, if we look at male victims of child sexual exploitation, it goes even worse. Mm. Because straight away, we still struggle with the notion that a young male can be victim to this form of abuse. Yeah, of course. Um, and and that's actually really quite uncomfortable a lot of the time to having conversation. I've seen cases personally where we've had male victims and female perpetrators. And we're talking we're talking adult female perpetrators in their mid to late 20s, sometimes 30s, sometimes 40s, and male victims under 16 and nobody referring to that young male as a victim. Instead, shaping the language in a way that refers to them being in a relationship with... Or that they're victorious because... Oh, they love it. 15, et cetera. Yeah. What an accomplishment. Yeah. yeah. Why would they? Yeah, that's what boys want, isn't it? That's what, you know. Um, the reality is, though, the research is pretty clear on this. The, the, it, it, a, for male victims... 
the impact can be just as profound. So that so trauma is trauma at the end of the day. Of course. Um, and yet we do we still struggle to see males as victims. And the impact of that is we see lower rates of disclosure. That then skews the data we have around um, when we when we're looking at gender and disclosure. Yeah, on the face of it, on paper, we have more disclosures from females. But what we also know from the research is males are less likely to disclose. Yeah, of course, because there's so many other added layers there with masculinity and identity. Stigma. Um, Absolutely. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. When it comes to exploitation, there's obviously quite a spectrum And whilst we can't go through every single thing that falls under the umbrella, I'd be curious to know, Conrad, what is on the kind of, I don't want to say lighter end of the scale, but perhaps more common end of the scale, such Mm. as exploitation, I think maybe a 14-year-old male, female in between sends a nude photo, that adult then passes that photo around. Does that fall under this umbrella as well or is it different because i mean i just know that you said social like a social benefit a social gain if a someone's sitting at the pub and they're passing around a nude photo they were sent is that classed as sexual exploitation uh yes it would be yeah okay so that would be considered to be online exploitation um what we're seeing interestingly is a massive increase in australia of um, young male victims of sextortion. So uh, the federal police have reported over the last 12 to 18 months a quadrupling of cases of young males being um, exploited and sextorted by uh, gangs, um, a, a number of overseas gangs based in India, Africa, the Ivory Coast, where they're sextorting them either for more photos, more material, or for money. So uh, I remember there was a case that uh, came up, it would have been probably about a year, year and a half ago, of a male, a young male who, in, a, in an attempt to try and problem solve what had transpired, he'd been groomed by one of these gangs, thought he was actually talking to a young female of a similar age, was persuaded to send pictures, um, was then sextorted, and he problem-solved it by getting hold of, uh, I think, his parents' credit card and um, handing over $15,000. So so we see, we see those kind of things occurring. That's becoming more common. Um, the online world, we have to be very clear, and the message for some reason is not getting through, But the reality is the online world is just as unsafe as the physical world. 
And yet we have this bizarre dichotomy where we recognize that in our policy discourse, but we don't recognize how unsafe the offline world is for young people who who are experiencing um, sexual exploitation. Now, um, what we generally see, and and the best way to describe this is when we're looking at typologies of sexual exploitation, the most commonly seen are probably, um, there are probably about four. Uh, the first one is what, what we'd refer to as inappropriate relationships. Um, so that's where you will have a, an adult, either male or female, who will set themselves up almost in a role model context to a young person. Um, and they'll be seen as somebody that they can kind of rely on. Um, generally the young person will think they're they're in a loving friendship or relationship and though the the it's not unusual to see things like accommodation as the exchange and then the young person finding themselves in a situation where they're actually forced to have to pay for the support that they're receiving so that's that's the one that we see more and more commonly um, you see organized exploitation and trafficking. So that's where you'll generally see organized crime gangs um, grooming, targeting young people, grooming them, sexually exploiting them, trafficking them distances. So I've consulted on numerous cases um, here in Queensland where we've seen young people being trafficked from the Sunshine Coast as far north as Rockhampton, as far south as Byron Bay and Coffs Harbour. Um, I've seen cases in Tasmania where young people have been trafficked um, from north to south. Uh, we've seen young people trafficked from Tasmania into Victoria and, and so on. Um, that's more common than people realise, and it's generally quite organised and sophisticated. Um, you'll see young people trafficked uh, across hotels and motels. Uh, the hotel and hospitality industry is actually a prime um, target when it comes to uh, a need for training and understanding. Because, uh, and we, we actually ran a pilot project on the Sunshine Coast up here earlier this year, targeting hotels, hospitality venues, and taxi and rideshare services because they commonly used. Um, we, actually, we actually went out one day and basically called on hotels and apartments to hand out resources, information, and have conversations with front-of-house staff. And it was really interesting because the amount of front-of-house staff that would say to us, you would not believe what we see. Mm. And some of them would actually go so far as to say, we actually didn't understand that what we were seeing was exploitation or trafficking. But now that you've actually explained it to us, we've got a completely different view. And and so when you look at the public perception and how the public interprets something, um, it doesn't always marry up with the actual uh, the sort of definition or defined understanding. So you've got organized exploitation and trafficking. You'll often see young people used to recruit other young people into that. Um, the levels of threat and 
violence that are used are, are quite pr- profound. Um, I, I've seen cases where we've had young people um, beaten unconscious and left in ditches um, as as a warning that they're not to disclose or speak out. Um, the the other one we often see is peer to peer recruitment. And that's where you'll see cohorts of young people in schools, sports club settings, recruit other young people into exploitation. Perpetrators like this particular model because it means that they don't actually have to have contact with the target. So they get other young people to do it. And if anything, if anyone gets caught, it's the young people that get caught, not perpetrators. Um but probably the most common you will see is what's known as the boyfriend-girlfriend model. And that's where you'll see an older, uh, either an older um, young person, so sort of an 18 or 19-year-old, um, right through to 20s and 40s, strike up a relationship with young people, often young people who are not having a great time at home, um, they will uh, start what's seen by the young person as a loving relationship. Um, it will rapidly turn into a sexual relationship. The young person views that other person as as either an older boyfriend or girlfriend. Um, and then you see that perpetrator create dependency on themselves. So they will look to try and drive a wedge between the young person and any protective networks or individuals they have. So that young person will then quite rapidly become isolated from their peers, isolated from family. Um, once they're in that stage, generally it's in that it's in that creating dependency stage that the adults in that young person's life start to go, something's wrong. But what they will often witness is actually challenging behavior, disruptive behavior, antisocial behavior, because the young person is pushing back against uh, those those in their, their life that are generally quite protective. Um, this will often mean that young people will then start to run away. They'll go missing overnight. Um, they may even, you may even find with the 15, 16 and 17 year olds that um, they get kicked out of the family home because parents are struggling. They can't manage the behavior. And that's exactly what the perpetrators want because it means then the young person will almost always go um, to live with the perpetrator or wherever they are. And once they're in that that situation, they then become trapped. Um, yeah. They become dependent they will often be um, forced to become dependent on drugs like ice. Um, that creates compliance, and it means there's then forced dependency. So the exchange then becomes um, becomes less affection and attention orientated, and more towards drug um, dependency. It's that bell curve of coercive control, isn't it? It's breaking down a person, which, you know, I've had plenty of conversations on the podcast and in real life about coercive control 
And how wonderful that we have the language for it now that, you know, my parents certainly didn't have. But as you're explaining this dynamic of, you know, someone who's 13, 14 gets mixed up with a 20-year-old, did did it, did it, this slippery slope. I can see it play out. Like I am sitting here going, when I was 15, I had a boyfriend that was 21. Luckily, he wasn't a terrible human, but I still even now, now at 35, when I think about that age gap, Conrad, I'm like, what was a 21-year-old doing with me? Like, was it just that I had a healthy sense of self-esteem and stability at home that meant I didn't then go down that slippery slope, which can just so happen can happen so easily for vulnerable teenagers. Like I can see that. And I think it's such a well-worn path. Obviously they have this script of lock in on a vulnerable young person, follow these moves, make them depend on you, kind of break them down. And then they've got this Play-Doh person that they can manipulate. Yeah, absolutely spot on. And that's exactly, and that's exactly right. What you've just described there. So the, the, your, your own personal um, situation there, that, that is probably the most common. And in terms of age range, you're probably on the money. So it's probably 15 year old young person and a 21, 22 year old. Um, it's generally, you'll see uh, female victim, male perpetrator. However, I always throw in the caveat, we have to be very careful when we start to stereotype according to gender. Um, but that's that's the typical age range. Now, we've seen cohorts of young people where, you know, I, I've just described to you four different typical models of child exploitation, but you'll actually see all of them intersect. So, So they may not always be just a single model that's being used you may actually see organized exploitation gangs utilizing the boyfriend girlfriend model or the inappropriate relationship model and the peer-to-peer recruitment model all at the same time yeah of course and what that does is it actually makes um it can make the comp the, the dynamics difficult for people to understand and tease out because on the face of it all everyone will see is a young person who's being challenging, displaying antisocial behavior. Um, it, it's not unusual to see young people who, when they hit that, they kind of go from the, the dependency, creating dependency stage to the what we call the taking control stage, where the perpetrators basically then start to show their real colors. Um, that's when you start to see young people displaying. Um, some of your your more uh, concerning behaviours, so things like eating disorders might might show up. You you see self harm, suicide attempts, ideation, that kind of stuff. Um, and so so by the time they hit that stage, you then see this intersection with severe mental health issues. And of course, everyone will be focused on the mental health stuff without understanding that. Well, there's possibly a power and control dynamic at work here. People will hear that there's maybe an older boyfriend, but nobody will actually question the context to that and what that means, what that actually looks like. And is that something we should be worried about? And amazingly, what you will often see with your 15, 16 and 17 year old victims 
is everyone going, oh, yeah, they've got an older boyfriend or they're in a relationship with this this adult. Nobody really challenging that. And everybody instead referring to the whole situation as intimate partner violence or domestic violence. When in actual fact, what we've got is uh, often cases of exploitation occurring. And, and the interesting thing is um, the, the coercive control and the power and control dynamics that you see, especially used in the boyfriend model, looks so similar to adult domestic violence cases. And um, we have language for that. We have, we even have um, offence mechanisms and support mechanisms for picking that up for victims of domestic violence. We don't have that for child exploitation. Yes, and even some of those, I guess, things that we should look out for as parents, such as the moodiness and the acting out or the defiance, I imagine a lot of parents are like, well, that's just having a teenager, you know, and kind of look the other way. <laughs> Because that's what yeah. we're told, right? Like I've not well, got te- I've not got teenagers <laughs> yet, Conrad, but I remember being one. <laughs> and sometimes it is. And, to, and but this is uh, but this is the the this is the challenge we've got mm. is um, you know we when I was a teenager, it it <laughs> things are not the same as they were when I was a teenager. However, the interesting thing is I've often reflected on this as a result of my work. And thought back to cases I remember of both both boys and girls I was in school with who were clearly being sexually exploited. But um, it was even less visible back then. And, and the interesting thing is it was probably less common than it is now. We now have a scenario where on – and I'm – not exaggerating, on pretty much any given day during the week, I'm getting cases raised by different professional organisations in different states where they're saying, we've got these cases here, we're seeing it everywhere. I had a conversation with somebody in Tasmania yesterday that works in one of the government agencies, and they they said it's almost like somebody's opened the floodgates. We are now seeing cases of teenagers being sexually exploited daily. Well, I imagine social media has something to do with that, right? Because it gives you so much access to someone. You know, if a teenager, if anyone has their profile on public, someone can begin to breadcrumb some grooming, leaving comments, asking, getting to know you, interactions, all of those sorts of things, which then just mean... (laughs) you're just exposed to more people. So it would make sense that that rate would increase. But I wonder about, I know we've spoken a lot about teens on kind of that preteen age. What about primary school age children? Just Mm. because I know a lot of our listeners, and I know we have to wrap up soon, but I know a lot of our listeners will have primary school age children. I'm guessing it's still relative. Um, It it is relative. what you tend to see is you see online, in my experience, you see online exploitation being a, a bigger issue for um, primary school age children. A lot of it comes down to the supervision level of children and young people. Um, what you tend to see with uh, primary school age kids is they have less freedom afforded to them 
to be able to go wherever they want. Um, and there tends to be a much generally um, much more interest from parents and carers over <laughs> what they've got going on. Their lives tend to be a bit more structured. The problem you have is when you hit the teenage phase of life, teenagers decide they know what's best for themselves. And and so you tend to see a greater degree of freedom occurring. And because you have the, the um, challenging behavior that is typically associated with teenagers alongside some of these other dynamics, um, you tend to find young teenagers get um they don't get viewed within the context of vulnerability in the same way and so people tend not to uh raise red flags as quickly as they would with primary school aged kids so if primary school aged child for instance was going missing you'd everybody would be on it Whereas if we see a child go missing who's, say, 15 years of age, uh, yeah, people will be concerned. Um, but let's just hypothetically say you've got a 15-year-old who's in residential care and they're going missing. They're actually not viewed in a victim context. They're actually viewed quite problematically as though they're actually displaying challenging behaviour. What you will often find is people become compassion fatigued when they have young people in out-of-home care displaying the indicators and behaviours that you would see associated with exploitation. And so that changes the tone and the response. So age does come into it. Age does affect vulnerability, but the difference is the protective measures and actions that tend to occur at the different ages has a huge impact on the outcome. Um, so, you know, you tend to find that we afford our 14 and 15-year-olds more freedom because they're 14 and 15 and they're interacting socially and they're doing things that we all kind of go, well, that's normal for 14 and 15-year-olds. The problem you have is you've got this this underlying issue of well they're also going through puberty and there are other dynamics at work that you for your primary school children aren't there and they increase your risk factors so we've got to we've got to really tread that fine line between how do we afford them healthy risk for for appropriate development which is important while at the same time ensuring that they have the right to the protection that should be given to them as children. Mm. Um, and it doesn't help when we explain them anyone under the age of 18 away as being a young adult. Yeah, and I imagine <laughs> there are so many layers in terms of how can we actually try and protect our teens, our vulnerable children, even though they're walking around looking like they're adults. And I imagine like I imagine that communication is one of the biggest things, right? Like having an open, yeah. open, honest dialogue with your children from a young age where if they come to you with something that is, you know, potentially upsetting or 
if they've done the wrong thing, still holding that safe, stable realm of communication, I imagine could be one way that we can. For sure. And- I, I, you, you, you are, uh, you, you've actually, you, you're kind of leading towards potential solution focused um, approaches there. The reality is if we understand that in the majority of cases where young people are being exploited, they're seeking connection. So if we if we understand that and we know that that is the case, then that tells us that communication and keeping connection with our young people is actually critical. Um, you're never going to see eye to eye with them on everything. You won't. And it's important that we accept that. But what we can do is ensure that they know that if they can communicate with us over anything, no matter how serious or little, um, then we're always going to at least give them the opportunity to be able to raise a flag when something is seriously wrong. Yeah. That's really crucial. It's one of those things I often talk about with my own kids in saying that I want to try and always remember, and I know I won't always get it right, but I want to try and always remember that there is an entry fee into their world. And at three years old, it was blowing bubbles and making silly faces. At five years old, it was Pokemon for one and Elsa for the other. And now at nine years old, let me tell you, Conrad, I am this close to jumping off a cliff because one of my boys is obsessed with Dungeons and Dragons. Uh And so he talks incessantly about it. But I always remind myself the fact that we can have these conversations and have open conversations and be warm and be responsive and engaging I think that's the entry fee into the world for the tougher conversations because, yes, I listen to them talk about these things I'm not interested in, but they also come to me when they have a question like recently one of them got off the bus and said, Mum, what's teabagging? And we had this honest conversation. And, you know, what is sex between two men? And we have these open conversations that I don't squirm away from. And I think communication is so important. And when I reflect on my own teenage years, back to, you know, being 15 and having an older boyfriend, one of the biggest blessings I had was that I could talk to my parents about anything. Mm. You know, I could say, talk about sex in front of my dad and he wouldn't, you know, I mean, I'm sure he was uncomfortable, but he didn't visibly look uncomfortable. And I could talk to my mum about losing my virginity and I could talk openly. And it just made me feel so safe in knowing I could always go to them. Yeah. If you can't, so if your kids can't have those kind of conversations with you, who are they going to have those conversations with? Yeah. And and the reality is what we know is for a lot of young people, if they cannot have that level of communication with the people that should be there to protect them, then they're going to seek out the people that will have those conversations with them. And unfortunately, they're not always the safest people. And we And we see that in the online world. I see a lot for young people who are struggling with their sexual identity. If they can't have a conversation with a protective parent or even protective peers, then they're going to seek that information elsewhere, and they're not always going to seek that information in the safest ways. Um, And so it's really important that we understand as uncomfortable as we might be with, with content, we need to get comfortable in our uncomfortableness. 
because that's a hell of a lot better than being in a situation where they're then finding themselves in an abusive situation Mm -hmm. because the discomfort goes to a whole other scale then. You're Mm -hmm. dealing with fallout that has lifelong impact. Um, So it's it's really crucial. Communication, and interestingly, with communication, you'll help to build resilience because you're able to unpack complex situations with them as they occur, and that helps to build resilience. Um, the, the biggest solution to, to um, generally, I find, any of these kind of situations is meeting unmet need, and the, that normally comes through communication. So yeah. how do I have a conversation with a young person who maybe is in a really unsafe situation? Do I, um, do I come at them from a punitive perspective and tell them, oh, you shouldn't be doing that or you shouldn't be taking risks or, um, or tell them off? Or do I understand or do I try and understand where they're coming from and how they've ended up there? Yeah, I imagine uh, for parents approaching their kids, their teenagers, their children for context, and sometimes just sharing an experience that you've had as well when you were their age, that can build connection really easily. And I think that there uh, is quite a lot of research now that points to when you are communicating with a teenager, do it parallel, you know, do it while yeah. you're driving, while you're walking. It's not sitting down. It's not the holier than thou punitive uh, way that you spoke about there. But um, you've given us so much, so much to think about. I know that you're out there we'll say, doing God's work uh, with Project Paradigm. Could you tell us a little bit about that and also where our listeners can donate? Because I know you're busy, you're spread thinly doing so many things, and this is a really, really important initiative. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, And as you well know, I'm not great at promoting that stuff, and I need to get better at it because we get no government funding at the moment for what we do, and yet the demand is enormous. So uh, Project Paradigm, we set up about a year and a half ago, uh, set up by an organisation called IFYS, and stands for Integrated Family and Youth Service. Uh, IFYS was started back in 1980, um, and at the time they were established as a youth shelter in Malulabar on the Sunshine Coast, and most of their client group were being sexually exploited. So at the time, it was called opportunistic prostitution or child prostitution. And so much of their work was kind of rooted in that. Project Paradigm is kind of a return to its roots uh, because we've recognized that this issue intersects with so many other problems within that youth, uh, the, the world of youth. Um, so our aim is to, um, it's pretty simple, really, uh, is to preserve and protect the notion of childhood. In other words, children should be allowed to be able to be children. Um, and that means anyone under the age of 18, uh, we want that to occur through advocacy. So we do quite a bit of advocacy. We spend time trying to lobby politicians, um, get in front of policymakers and bureaucrats to to create change 
to actually support young people and keep young people safe. Um, we also deliver training to frontline staff, uh, frontline professionals across the country who work with young people in the at-risk space. Uh, and we also develop resources, handout resources, easy to access resources that can be utilized by members of the public. Um, we launched back uh, about a month ago a new national campaign called It's Happening Here. You can access that at itshappeninghere.com.au. And the focus of that campaign is to help Australians right across our communities understand that this is a problem we have in our own backyard that actually needs our attention. Um, we want people to look out for young people. We want people to care for the young people in our com communities. So the focus of that campaign is very much to help people understand and recognize um, that it's occurring here. Project Paradigm, um, there, is, there is the option to donate through Project Paradigm. So we try and make sure that pretty much 100% of any funding that we get goes straight back into resource development, um, training projects. We recently ran a project that had a little bit of funding from Sunshine Coast Council where we were targeting the hotel and hospitality industry. And that was to help frontline hotel and hospitality workers be able to recognize um, when they had young people who were in risky situations in their, their venues. Um, so we, we try and do that kind of stuff. We've got a number of projects that we want to get off the ground um, that are focused on either training for free. I'd love to train everybody for free. Unfortunately, it's not always possible. Um, but we also want to start targeting young people more in a proactive way. So we've got some we've got some pilot projects that we want to run that we're trying to raise money for at the moment as well uh, that help to do that. So so that's kind of how people can help. That's what we do. That's what we are doing. Um, and and follow us. Click on our our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn. Um, follow us, like us, share our stuff. Uh, help to grow the awareness of this issue, so that actually young people don't remain hidden in the amongst. Yeah. yeah, monetary donations are amazing, and if people can set aside a couple of dollars to go towards this incredible cause and these resources, please do. Like. For our listeners, we will have that link in our show notes. And as you've said, Conrad, even just getting involved in sharing the message and, you know, helping this conversation, this topic to reach more people. I know as a parent myself, you've given me so much food for thought. So even for those listeners who have, you know, taken value from our conversation, yeah, jump over, click follow, share this conversation, post it on your social media, any sort of attention and awareness that our listeners can bring any sort of spotlight that they can shine on it can only be a good thing. So thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, Kylie. I really appreciate your, your coverage and your support with what we're doing as well. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. 
Today's podcast episode was recorded on the land of the Bunjalung Nation. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.